Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We have with us today Michael McKean, who's currently starring on Broadway in Hairspray. He's an actor, a writer, a director, a composer, a singer, musician. In the comedy area, Michael, you've become famous for Credibility Gap, a comedy troupe with uh, David L. Lander and Harry Shearer. I counted more than 50 films on your resume. Maybe you've left a few off, but most notably, everything ranging from Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap to the Brady Bunch movie. Mm -hmm. In between A Mighty Wind, uh, Mystery Alaska, the Russell Crowe movie, The Big Picture, which you co-wrote, the Clint Eastwood movie, True Crime, and my personal favorite, Earth Girls Are Easy. Oh. Way, way back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Musician and composer, you wrote the title song for Mighty Wind along with your wife, Annette O'Toole. You wrote A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow. Television, we knew you in the 70s, I guess it was, as uh, one of the comedy tri- a duo of uh, Lenny and Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley. You were Lenny, as I recall. That's correct. Uh, Currently, primetime click now going into its third season on Comedy Central. The X Files, you had a recurring role. You've done animation voices. You've directed things. You've written. Uh, you've been on Broadway stage before back in 1990 in Accomplice by Rupert Holmes, for which you won a Theatre World Award. Sitting here looking at you, you bear more than a passing resemblance to Edna Turnblad. Oh, any relation? Yes. I've, whenever I'm on 52nd Street, people say the same thing <laughs> because I'm usually wearing what Edna has given me. Uh, Edna, of course, is the the uh, one of the characters in Hairspray, which is what I'm doing right now. Right. And um, I think anything that uh, that anything anyone says that's uh, that, that's close to comparing me with Edna Turnblad is fine with me. She's okay, a heroine what you, of mine. What do you say when your agent <laughs> calls and says, so would you like to come to Broadway as a 350-pound woman? Uh, well, they always give you the scary part first if they're, if they're worth their salt. <laughs> so they wait, say, where did they would, start? Well, they said, how would you like to follow Harvey Firestein in this role? Because I knew what the, what the show was. I hadn't seen mm-hmm. the show. But, um, you know, that was, uh, that was intimidating a little bit. But, uh, you know, otherwise it just looked like a lot of fun. It looked like a lot of work. And I, I, I wanted to see the show and make sure that it would be something that I could do. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was a wonderfully clever piece, and I love it every night now. So eight times a week, I uh, I embrace this, and uh, it's done the same for me. I've had an awfully good time. Now, having seen the show myself a couple mm-hmm. years ago with Harvey in the lead, and now mm-hmm. yourself as Edna, uh, it strikes me that you have a very different interpretation of Edna than Harvey did. How, how did you come to interpreting that role? Well, I, I think the process is so different because Harvey was with it from the first table read. I mean, he was, and if you know Harvey, you know there's a lot of input mm-hmm. with a big capital juicy eye. And uh, so I know that Harvey, this is a role that Harvey crafted. But when you're an actor and you are given a script, you, you know you still, as much as I'd, you know, I, I'd love to, to to grab some of Harvey's laughs, you have to find out where your logic is uh, in the role, and, and you have to make it real for you. I don't think I'm not a big fan of comedy that's not particularly real. You know, I think that really good comics, even if they're broad, are 100 percent real. When John Lithgow is over the moon and very funny, he's still l- logically impeccable. Um, so that's how I build a character. I want it to make sense for me, and I want it to be to, to be real. And uh, you know, so I I, I had to I'm, listen. There's one line in Hairspray that Harvey would get an enormous, <laughs> a bench clearing laugh with every every night, and the line reads, "Excuse me." Well, he says it in that pitch. It's about 
I don't know. It's a D. That Harvey Firestein well, voice. It's a D, four octaves yeah. below middle C. Gravel and, voice. Yes. Well, it's not just gravel. It's it's like a, it's a whole bunch of ugly tarmac is what it is. <laughs> it's just nobody has a voice like this. But the fact is it's very deep. I said the other day, I said that Harvey's the only guy who can sing the theme song to Jaws in its original key. <laughs> he just has that voice. And when he says, excuse me, all 14 syllables of it that he does... You know, that's something I can't do. I haven't got the, the equipment for that. So I, I'm just trying to make Edna a real person, and there's some great jokes in here that, uh, you know, boy, you'd have to be punchy to throw. Well, it, it, it did strike me that you play the role in a human way. You, you play it with humanity attached as opposed to looking for laughs. Hmm. Well, again, I mean, it, I, I mean, just wanted to make sense for me. I just wanted to be real. Yeah, and and certainly the laughs are there. You do get uh-huh. the laughs. But, oh, yeah. But yeah. you aren't playing it as a comic. You're playing more as a real person. More as Edna Turnblad, the yeah, woman, than I, as an actor playing the role of Edna I Turnblad. I thought Harvey was very touching, too, though. I mean, I, I thought, thought he was, he was I deeply thought he was, touching. Yeah, your, approach I, is, your approach is different because, as you say, you have a different, different instrument. Different equipment. Yeah, and, and you're playing opposite a different actress than he at least did initially and created the role with. Right. Did you get a lot of time to prep with this cast? I had one month. Mm-hmm. I had four solid weeks of rehearsal. And um, some very, and very had patient done the dance show, captains. Was already doing the show previously. She had been doing it for eight months on the road already. Right. I mean, she was uh, she was born to play this. So role. she'd been doing it with Bruce Valance. Yes, Pl- playing Tracy Turnblad. Tr- Tracy, yeah, yeah. And uh, she just turned twenty. Carly mm-hmm. did, and um, she has enough juice to run a small city. <laughs> and uh, I just adore her. I mean, I think I'm having such a, such a good time with her. And then Peter Scolari just came into yeah. the show. Yeah, it was his his first week was this past. So week. you had wow. done it with Dick Latessa with previously? Dick every uh, pretty much every performance. Actually, there were a few times. The last few weeks of Dick's run, he decided to take uh, Tuesdays and Sundays off. You oh, know, which long does weekends. make li- well, yeah. it makes life a lot easier and. Uh, he certainly had it coming. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an amazing cat. I just love him. Um, so it was really sad to see him go. But Peter's an old friend, and uh, we're having a lot of fun working together. And I must say, you and Peter make a truly delightful couple. Well, thank you. Yes, <laughs> there is the size difference. Mm-hmm. There is, <laughs> Which is intentional, I presume. Yeah, I think so. I think there's the age difference, too. But that's, that's who, you know, who uh-huh. we actually are. You know, he doesn't know who Captain Video was. Mm. You know, but he's not that young, okay? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I stress to point out. Um but uh, <laughs> but Peter's great. Peter is a, is, is a very, very funny actor and a major dude. I like him. So how does it feel being a mother? Well, you know what? I, I, fortunately, this play does not include a moment of childbirth, so I didn't have to really, you know, scope that emotional <laughs> territory. Um, but I am a parent, and uh, I think to be... To be a really good parent, you shouldn't have an IQ of about 500, and I'm I'm a, a, a limited intelligence, as is Edna. So, as a parent of limited intelligence, uh, I, I um, uh, that's who I'm playing. I'm playing a, a person who cares like crazy about their child and uh, would do anything to keep that child from being hurt, but also is smart enough to know when the moment to unlock the door and let him out into the real world happens. Did you get any input from either your wife, Annette O'Toole, or oh any other God. women as to how to play this role? Yes. Well, Annette helped me with a lot of the physicality, um, as did, you know, other people, Jack O'Brien and and uh, Jerry Mitchell and, and, you know, people I was working with in rehearsal. Um, but, yeah, Annette actually went with me to the to the shoe man 
when I was having these shoes built because I never I haven't spent all that much time on heels, guys. <laughs> and I'm, I'm six feet even. That's enough. I don't need any more height. Um, so I don't, as a matter of course, wear high heels. So uh, she really helped me out. You know, she, she'd watch me walk from the front and from the rear. And she would add, you know, her own pointers because she's been walking like a girl for a long time. <laughs> been practicing all her life. Yes, indeed. She's how, getting how did, very good at it. How did you come to the part? Did you go after the part? Did they come after you? Uh, no. I first heard about the role, uh, I first heard about the, the show when it was in its pre-infancy, actually. The, um, I was at a party with uh, uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, who wrote the songs, and they played a couple of tunes from the new show, and it's based on Hairspray. So that sounds like a great idea. And who's playing so and so? And you know, they told me that, uh, that that Harvey was doing. And I said, it sounds like you know, I, what I should have said was, may I invest? May I invest? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't, uh, but I said that sounds great. And then, of course, the show opened. It was a big hit, and it won Tonys and everything. And um, then, around January of this year, or December of last. Um, they started calling to see if I wanted to, if I was interested in going in after Harvey. And uh, it was one of those things that kind of kept bubbling under and over and it's happening, it's not happening. And uh, Harvey, I think, extended or, or you know, I, I don't really know the full story. But um, long story short, and it's way too late for that, uh, in January they said, uh, you know, why don't you come on in and we'll, you know, look at the show and audition and see what happens and that's what happened in an incredibly varied resume there's minimal theater experience mm -hmm. you've you've been on stage many times in your other personas but but legitimate stage experience is there stuff either that's not in your resume that we should be asking you about <laughs> or or why has it taken this time to 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 bring you to this prominence given your versatility well the two-word answer is los angeles I uh, I live in Los Angeles. I've lived there since 1970. Um, I did a lot of cabaret performing as part of this group called The Credibility Gap, which was this satirical outfit with Harry Shearer and Richard Beebe and David Lander. Um, but I didn't do a lot of plays. There were some plays that I uh, I came close to doing. Uh, there was a play, the first play that was ever done at the Matrix Theater in Los Angeles. I was in it, and my wife was pregnant, and I didn't want to, you know, be, have that situation where, mm -hmm. well, we're between shows. Could you do it now, honey? <laughs> um, so, there were times like that, and and uh, I, I didn't do a lot of theater. Listen, I did when I was a kid, when I was nineteen, twenty, when I was still going to to college. I was at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference. Really, I was. I did that one summer, sixty nine. The previous summer, I was at uh, the Loeb Drama Center, which is now the home of uh, now the American a Repertory Theater ART, at, yeah. at Harvard. At the time, it was uh, it was a, a student, an in invitational student theater, and we did Shakespeare and Shaw and stuff, and and the worst the worst production of the Balcony anyone will ever see. <laughs> the four and a half hour uncut version on opening night was, well, what can I say? <laughs> It's the feel like a tech opening night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, many of them are. Yeah, actually. so I did. I, you know, but as far as professional theater, you know, theater that's in it for the money. Uh, I, 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 1989, I did Accomplice, uh, Rupert Holmes's play in Pasadena, and then I came to New York with it, and that's only been my only Broadway experience. So between Accomplice and Hairspray, mm -hmm. would you ever consider doing a show that has more than one word in the title? No. Never. <laughs> it has to be one word. Well, maybe the hairy ape, but I'm all wrong. 
<laughs> well, as we're talking about this, you've you've mentioned the credibility gap. We we always have an issue when we're speaking to actors who've joined productions during their runs when we're talking about musicals because we can't play a song mm. from the show that they're currently in. Right. But um, in perhaps a bit of foreshadowing, it seems that we, we ought to play something from the credibility gap and a song in which you sing lead called You Can't Judge a Book by Its Hair. See, now there's more than one word time. There's a <laughs> lot of words in that title. Okay. But, but that's a song, not a show. Okay. So <laughs> let's listen to Michael McKean and the credibility gap, and then we'll come back and find out what this was all about. On XM28 on Broadway, talking with Michael McKean, starring in Hairspray as Edna Turnblad, but also on Credibility Gap. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the group, how it came to be. And the Credibility Gap was born, uh, strangely enough, uh, right after the Robert Kennedy assassination in 1968. There were a bunch of, uh, there were some newsmen, a guy named Lou Irwin, a guy named Richard Beebe, uh, at a station in Pasadena called KRLA, and an AM station, and they started doing kind of editorializing that became kind of sketches and then they started hiring funny people David Lander and then Harry Shearer I'm not sure about the order there um, uh, some other people whose you know whose names escape me right now uh, and it was sort of like the news department um, the personnel solidified when we were all fired <laughs> and da- uh, David and Harry and Richard and myself became the credibility gap and we went to another station and did uh, sketches there. It was, it was basically a straight news story followed by a, an extrapolatory sketch of some kind or a song. And um, so that's what we did. We kind of went from that to the stage. We did a couple of albums. This this is from an album called uh, A Great Gift Idea, which was on Warner Brothers. And... Um, there is actually a German version of the same song. Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't find that. No, you can't. That's a, that's a tough one to find. The um, it, the words don't make any sense either. The, anyway, they have they have lines like "Mein Bustenhalter ist zu warm," which means my bra is too hot. But uh, it was just we we wanted to have a. It was the title of the tune was "Foreign Novelty Smash," and it was just the same song as on the A side, but in German. <laughs> so that was just a way. Of, that was just a way of filling this one side of a single. So anyway, that's uh, but that song is about was kind of dedicated to Mike Curb, who was the uh, head of MGM Records at one point, and he, he fired all this Deadwood and said it was because they were all using drugs, and you know it was just a big bunch of crap. <laughs> well, I've read I've read that that some people have attributed the song to being an Osmond Brothers. Well, it is specifically. It is. So yes. Mike Curb was producing the Osmonds. Yes, because I'm the one who said it. he's the one who suggested that the Osmond Brothers start dressing like the Jackson Five which is how they got their hit singles. Hmm. They were this barbershop group, and all of a sudden he said, let's put a lot of fringe on it <laughs> and and get some, you know, some urban people to play the music. <laughs> I think, I hope I'm using the right euphemism. And, uh, and that's how we'll, we'll make a fortune, and they did. Had you been doing comedy before Credibility Gap? Well, yeah. I, when I was at NYU, I, w- uh, I studied uh, improvisation with um, a guy named Omar Chaplee, who was a member of the original Compass Players and second, the original Second City. And uh, he had a class called Games Improvisation, and that was where we had the most fun. And he would take, you know, the best guys, the guys who could really kind of mix it up a little bit, and we'd go and do – we did some bars around town. We played the Hotel Earl, I think, down in the village and a couple of other places. And, you know, and I had done that uh, in other – kind of in other guises uh, with uh, some other bunches of improvisational people. And 
Um, you know, I wrote funny stuff in high school. I wrote song parody, you know, like everybody does. Well, we all wrote funny things in high we school. We amused ourselves sure, in high school. Sure. We didn't make a career yeah. out of it. Must be, one must never look back at those, though. <laughs> but now it's out of credibility gap yeah. that then your quote-unquote big break came yeah. because Lenny and Squiggy were actually created by you and David Lander yes. under slightly different style with credibility gap. Well, actually, they, they predate the credibility gap by some years. Really? As a matter of fact, oh, David and I met in college in 1965, and these two characters were among many that we created then. Huh. And uh, those characters were in existence nine years before Laverne and Shirley, but also four years before the credibility gap. So, you know, it's just it's something that we kind of fell into because we both knew guys like this, and we kind of found this kind of otherworldly kind of bottom-of-the-brain-pan thought process very amusing. So we, uh, we, we just... It was a, those are, that's what we did. Um, I read, however, you had to clean them up a bit for oh, yeah. For national oh yeah, television. no, they were pretty gnarly. Yeah, yeah. But they, 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 you guys were hired as a team then for. We were hired as a team along with Harry Shearer because we were we were the credibility gap and we all were just shriveling on the vine. There was no such thing as satire anymore. It was like that was before Saturday Night Live made it profitable again, and all, comedy was pretty much if you weren't doing comedy about getting high. We did some comedy about getting high, but if every sketch isn't about getting high, the audience tunes out. So it was like a, it was a tough time, really. But we were hired uh, to yeah to write on the show, and uh, uh. Penny had the idea, of course, to come on as, as writers, and we'll try and work those two characters you do in because everybody you know got a uh. kick out of the characters, and they were very fifties oriented, and so it was just we wrote ourselves into the first script and every. Uh, Succeeding script, the script thereafter. Yeah. Yes, it sort of it sort of stuck. That, yeah, cameo that's a, that lasted. Pretty good way to get a job. Write yourself into the script. That's what we did. And, and if you wanted a vacation, you'd write yourself out for an episode and write <laughs> yeah. yourself back in. <laughs> well, they wouldn't let us write ourselves out for the first four years, I uh, think. But uh, now, in at this time, you were you were already you're playing music, you were writing music. Mm-hmm. You, there was actually a Lenny and Squiggy album. We won't yeah. keep playing anything from that. <laughs> okay, we didn't, that's all right. We didn't dig that up. That's but, all right. Um, if you had, I would help you bury it. <laughs> How? Was there a desire to pursue a music career in here or just something that you did as an avocation that that played into the material that you were doing? Um, Well, I've always managed to do a little of both. Um, Christopher Guest and I met at NYU and we started writing songs together immediately. Uh, In fact, we're right now we're going through our back catalog of stuff we never copyrighted. Songs that we wrote when we were 19 have just been sitting in the ether and no one's ever recorded them, so uh, some of them how, aren't how bad. How do they look a few years later? Not uh, some of them, not bad. Some of them we won't mm-hmm. discuss. But <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> those are the ones they can we stay in the ether. Yes, just yeah. a few choice lyrics. <laughs> Stinking up the ether for over three decades. Um, yeah, I've always done both, and and you know, it's it's it, I've never really had much desire to pursue that because I most of my stuff is kind of. The stuff that I write is, uh, if it's not for a purpose, it has a tendency to be kind of personal and a little snide. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But you did create one of the great fictional rock bands of our time, oh. namely Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. And how did that come about? Because that was a little different than the later films that you were doing with Chris Gaines. Yeah. Um, but how did Spinal Tap have its Spinal, Spinal Tap was born as a sketch, a parody of Midnight Special, the old uh, Wolfman Jack TV show, uh, on a proposed series and, as it happened, a standalone special called The TV Show, created by Rob Reiner 
and written by Rob and uh, Harry Shearer and Chris Guest and Tom Leopold and some others. Not myself. I was not a writer on the show. Um, but they had an idea to do this parody of Wolfman Jack, and so the I, Chris and I had goofed around with these characters, these you know English rockers, and and uh, so we said, well, let's create something like that, and that's what we did basically, and for, for that sketch, and then a few years later, or one year later, when Rob was looking to start his feature career, that became a notion to start with a this kind of improvisational, you know, fake documentary style. And we watched every real documentary, every real rock documentary, and, you know, digested all that stuff and, you know, and then just began working on it. Now, in Spinal Tap and in A Certain Wind, how much Mighty of that? Wind. Hmm? Mighty Wind. Mighty, Mighty Wind. Oh, Mighty Wind. Oh, a Certain right. Wind is very beautiful. <laughs> it's very Robert Frost. Yeah. In, 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 those, in those two films, how much of it was scripted? How much was improv? Because it, it looks so natural. There are two written lines in Spinal Tap and pretty much zero in either any of Chris's later works. Wow. I mean, if someone has something, says something that sounds like it's written, it's usually supposed to sound like something like the character has memorized, for uh-huh. example. Uh, like the song lyrics, obviously, but, uh, you know, uh, a couple of other moments like that. But for the most part, and by the most part, I mean 99%, uh, they're all improvised. All the dialogue is. So you just work from an outline? We work from, uh, it's really a s- classic scenario, what they called a scenario back in the silent days when titles were added, you know, months later. Uh, it, they were just paragraphs of what happens in the scene. And, you know, they uh, Chris shoots them... Usually no more than three times, um, each time directing the, physically directing the uh, the uh, cameraman or woman to, you know, into, into various positions to have an alternate. But again, I mean, it's, the, 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 it's not dialogue that's remembered from the first take. It's a re-exploration. And it makes for, you know, some tough times in the cutting room, but Chris has gotten very good at that. A great DVD extras. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, the more the more Jennifer Coolidge you can take home, the better. It's always been my philosophy. And it looks so natural. Like you really are the characters. Well, that's that's the, the plus it gives you. Yeah, it, it, it's it's you are the fly on the wall, and um, you know the, the, the histrionics are real. When they when an, uh, an actor explodes, he doesn't say. You know, darn you anyway, Mildred. It's something a little saltier and a little realer, hopefully. Uh, well, for A Mighty Wind, you wrote something like 10 songs for that. Most of them I had my songs. name on about 10 songs, some with varying degrees of involvement. Yes. So when you were growing up on Long Island, yeah. was Up With People a big influence in oh, your life? Lord. That was a little <laughs> after. See, I, I did start playing the guitar in the folk era, uh-huh. uh, which was the early six, uh, say 63, 64. Yeah, because by the time the Beatles came in, I was just learning the bar chords so I could play uh, their stuff. So I must have been playing guitar for about a year before that. Um, uh, but no, the Up With People was a little later. It was a, a kind of a later 60s. But uh, yeah, we were inundated with a lot of real crappy po- uh, folk music. And, because that, that film has Up With People written all over it. Well, yeah, especially <laughs> the new Main, Main Street, Street singers, singers, yeah. Street. And they're they're also uh, closely fashioned on a bunch of groups... Um, the uh, Back Porch Majority, the mm-hmm. Serendipity Singers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beans what? in Your Ears. Beans in Your Ears, exactly, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Potatoes in the Paddy Wagon. And the new Christy Minstrels, yeah. Um, and those were all pretty 
pretty grim chapters in American music, in my opinion, but fun to make fun of. The one thing that obviously is written in advance in in Mighty Wind and in Spinal Tap were the songs themselves. Right. And, of course, for Mighty Wind, you... Uh, you were Oscar nominated for writing yes. a song with your wife. I know. And I know. Was that the first time you and your wife Annette O'Toole sat down to write a song? Oh no, it was the second. <laughs> okay. Well, you did pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mean, the first one was this song called "Potatoes in the Paddy Wagon," which the New Main Street Singers do, and uh, we played that for Chris, and he said, "Would you guys like to try and write the song for Catherine and Eugene to be their kind of signature song?" and um, so we we fired that one off, and it uh, really didn't take very long because we we kind of because it's about us, you know. It's like just easy. It's easy to write when it's about yourself, if you're honest. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of wrote our story and and um, and uh, put it in a song. It was easy. Well, then we should play that. Uh, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara singing "A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow" from "A Mighty Wind," written by Annette O'Toole and Michael McKean. On XM28 on Broadway, John Von Susten along with Howard Sherman chatting with Michael McKean today and a song from A Mighty Wind. When I introduced you at the beginning of the show, Michael, I introduced you with a number of titles. Actor, writer, director, composer, singer, musician. How do you characterize yourself? When you fill out your tax return, they ask for what your occupation is. What do you put down? <laughs> well, I just write heathen and I let the <laughs> Lord sort it out. No, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm an actor, I guess. I mean, uh-huh. that's that's... Uh, that was the first job I wanted. The first, my first realization that making a living could be fun, or looked like it could be uh-huh. fun, and it it is. By the way, one of my teachers at NYU is, uh, was Olympia Dukakis, and she hmm. stressed it. She said the reason you wanted to do this is because it looked like it's it's great fun, and don't forget that it is. As hard as you work, and as much angst as you put into it, and as furious and uh, tearful it becomes at times. Don't forget how much fun it is. When you were growing up, is this what you always wanted to be other than you know, a fireman or a garbage man or whatever? Yeah, I always wanted to be this. And my parents were very, uh, you know, they were very supportive of the idea. And they were big, you know, fans of the theater and uh, and films and, and music. Um, you know, but they were also wise enough to say you should have something to fall back on. And I thought they meant guitar. <laughs> so smart I was. Uh, but, uh, you know, I... I, I thought for a minute I might want to do something in one of the crafts, like uh, makeup. I wanted to be a makeup man and make monsters and stuff, but it's not as much fun as what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I thought I'd be an architect until they told me about all the mechanical drawing I was going to have to learn, and, mm-hmm. and that left that in the dust. What was your first time on stage before anybody, before an audience? Your earliest recollection? Well, I was in... I played Dan Cupid in a Valentine's play... At, uh, at what age? Well, I was fourth grade. What are you uh-huh. in fourth grade? You're like nine. Uh-huh. That was the first time I had like a big part, uh-huh. you know, a lot of lines. And I wore a white shirt and white duck pants. Not duck pants. I mean, that sounds like I'm not dressed like Donald from the quack, quack. waist down. No, just these, you know what I'm talking about, these kind of white right. pants with hearts sewn all over them, felt, pink felt hearts, and my mother sewn all over them. And it was all about, boy, it was the, it was a, complete rip from the Grinch obviously it was about this nasty old man who kidnapped Valentine's Day mm. and Dan Cupid had to get to the bottom of the crime so that was the first role I really undertook and uh, then in high school I had a really ambitious in a good way uh, acting teacher uh, he was an English teacher but he was also the kind of the, the drama club guy 
and he did we did like six seven plays a year i mean we did a lot of six stuff, or seven right? plays yeah. a year yeah, high school that's a lot four in the summer wow. we did a repertory of four plays in the summertime hmm. well, where were some really of the titles cool. do you recall well glass menagerie uh-huh. uh the hasty heart inherit the wind jb um, you know, big boy but, plays. But, yeah, I mean, J.B. Yeah. for a high school group. Yeah, not, I played uh, J.B. when I was a senior. I, how, about, how about musicals? Yeah, Kiss Me Kate. Uh-huh. I was one of the gangsters in Kiss Me Kate. Uh-huh. Um, we did Bye Bye Birdie, but I was Hugo. I was a non-singing role. Um, what else did we do? Um, Kiss Me Kate. Redhead. Hmm, that's do you know that show? Oh, sure. School, yeah, sure. Peter Stone wrote the, the books. Pretty funny. Um, yeah, we did a ton of stuff. So with all of that theater now, I and and the songwriting coming to the fore, and, and in, at least in some of the other interviews I've seen, that you're really doing a lot more writing with, with your wife. Mm-hmm. There is a musical project that the two of you are yes. writing together, and I know you've been a little cagey about talking about it. I don't want to push you, but, but tell us well, what you're working on. I, I will tell you this. It is uh, indeed a musical that we're writing for a movie, for, to be a movie. Um, because it is cinematic in some of its form. I mean, it would it just story just breaks better that way. In other words, it's 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 a little more naturalistic than uh, than you know you'd you'd want to see someone attempt on the stage. Um, and it's well, I don't want to go too deep into this. We've written about ten songs. We have uh, a lot of characters who just refuse to behave. We have to, uh, what we have to do is clear the decks and really do nothing but this for a few months. And I think that's what we're going to try and do in, in May when, we, uh, when Annette is finished with, the, with Smallville, which she does up in Vancouver. And we'll just kind of like, you know, lock the doors and give the kids cash. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we'll just go to work. <laughs> in, in, in Hairspray, are you having fun out, out on stage? I'm having an enormous amount of fun. There's only one part of me that's not having fun. And it is the outside of my right big toe. I have something that began life as a blister, mm. and it is now turned into a national monument. <laughs> Again, because of the shoes? Oh, yeah. Well, I think so. I think so. The fact is I probably would have had, you know, it's some kind of cyst or something. I would have had it yanked <laughs> long ago. Oh, no, no. Like, listen. Really, oh, the I, level of detail we look for in the people if we this talk were, to. If this were TV, I'd be showing you the video of the, oh, uh, the operation. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that, uh, that it's just I don't have a day off, and I don't want to miss a show. So, I, you know, eh, it's just one of those things. Will we see you back on a Broadway stage again? Sure. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be part of a you know the original cast of a show and help create a show and mount a show. But failing that, the next time someone wants me to do something as much fun as this, I'm there. Well, more than three decades in showbiz, shall we say, between mm-hmm. theater and film and TV and all that. Any one particular outstanding moment, other than currently, obviously, as a viewer. No, no, as 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 oh. you, as a performer, whatever oh. you want to call yourself, actor, musician, whatever, like. If you had to put down on your on your your tombstone eventually what your shining moment was, boy, you know fourth grade. Here's the problem. <laughs> right. Dan, Dan, back to Dan, Dan Cupid. Cupid. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what? I really can't put it down to one. There were moments on stage with Spinal Tap. I guess Spinal Tap at Carnegie Hall in 2001. Um, we had, the, the opening act was the Folksman, which is also us. So we went on as the Folksman and. Most of the audience knew what the deal was, but a lot of them didn't, and a lot of them really came to see Tap, and mm-hmm. they were sort of like 
not booing exactly, but they were kind of, you know, rumbling and rumbling. And then this kind of the word kind of spread. And by the time we finished our abbreviated set, that's part of the gag is that we get yanked after a few numbers uh-huh. so that we can go put the, the other wigs on. Um, so anyway, it, it just went extremely well, the, the folksman set. And then we came out as tap and we did 90 minutes and uh, Paul Schaefer and Elvis Costello were with us. And uh, it was just insane. It was just more fun than you could imagine. And I think there was a moment where Harry and I just kind of like looked at each other and said, kind of without speaking, this may be the moment if the guy on the radio asks you. (laughs) (laughs) Remember this moment? Well, the moment the fiction and the fact merged. Well, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, we pretended to be an old rock band and they pretended to like us. So, (laughs) and they do. Now, we did A Mighty Wind, which yeah. was really a parody of folk singers. Right. Did anybody in the folk community react to that? Did you get any nasty letters from mm-hmm. Peter, Paul, and Mary? Or <laughs> no, we else? got one very nice letter from Peter. Uh-huh. No, from Paul. Uh, <laughs> one of them. I, I, Peter. No, Peter Yarrow. Yeah, That's I, right. I, I always get, get them, those two guys confused. Mary, I can Paul was the tall one. Yeah, Mary's pretty <laughs> easy to spot. Um, uh, no, it's all, it's all been positive. The Folksman played at a folk festival in 1993, with the Kingston Trio, with Peter, Paul, and Mary, <laughs> with Arlo, and and was was, was the the real guys, and uh, a lot of them were old friends. I mean, Mary Travers used to babysit Chris Guest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just this kind of Greenwich Village kind of community going way way back, but everyone was tickled pink and still still are, because I think that everyone who has lasted, anyone who had something really legitimate to offer, and consequently stuck around for a while they weren't the ones we were making fun of you know the, the the bands we were making fun of were really maybe limited sweet in their way and uh kind of not contemptible but still you know kind of maybe in it for the money hmm. have you ever tried to write any really serious music other than the parodies and that sort of thing that you've written? yeah i have a few uh, annette and i have written some songs that are that are dead serious mm-hmm. Um, we wrote a song. Annette started writing the song, uh, the, uh, the the glorious roll up to this uh, present conflict in uh, May of last year or March of last year. She began writing a song, kind of about about kind of about all women in all wars, and uh, it's a good song. I wish I had a. I wish you could spin that one right now because it's could pretty, hum pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no, she's the one with the voice. Yeah, she's yeah. so carrying me in that department. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought of writing a Broadway musical, perhaps, now that you're in one? I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, uh, again, I think I would have to go through the process from the table read to opening night before I know whether I have the stuff to do that. I've never been in on the the, the actual building of a music creative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just it's never been something that I've I've been uh, the uh, closest. I should mention you, uh, Jay Edgar, about ten years oh, ago. Oh yeah, but I didn't write that. See, no, that you was, didn't no. write it. That's true. Harry Shearer and uh, and Tom Leopold, with the help of Peter Matz, who was a you know significant talent, uh, he wrote the music. We should explain that that was a musical created for radio. Yes, um, though there was talk about it being brought to the stage. Yeah, well, we've done it. I've I've been in the cast of every you know every time it's been done publicly. Uh, um, so we've done it as kind of a staged reading, you know, with you know the music stands and everything. 
Um, but yeah, eventually, I think it should go on the stage. It's pretty hilarious for for people who are interested. Actually, they can they can go out and they can buy it through Los Angeles Theater Works. That's um, true. The the there's the original two CD yes. set available of that. Yeah, it's and a, it's you and and all of your usual suspects yeah. as well as Kelsey Grammer and John, John Goodman. Goodman. Yeah, um, as uh, J Edgar and Clyde yeah. is with, with all friend. of your different characterizations, your different voices. Do you ever get confused during a performance and forget who you are <laughs> and who you're supposed to be? No, fortunately, that's never happened. <laughs> there, uh, no, I don't think I've ever had that problem. But I, I'm a very limited mimic. So, uh, you know, consequently, my, my Satchmo is pretty much like my Robert Mitchum. You know, so <laughs> I have to, it's, that's why I don't do a lot of it, because I have a tendency to cross over. No, I try and keep it vocally honest as well as emotionally honest, yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the close today. We've got to get you off into makeup and hair and yeah, and it's an early show today. Yeah. So, um, but thank you. It's uh, it's you've really had an extraordinary career. You've done so much, and of course, New Horizons opening up all the time. It seems. Well, you know what? It, uh, the cliche used to be: it keeps me off the streets. Mm-hmm. But um, well, it keeps you off the streets eight times a week at least. <laughs> yeah, but of course, I walked here. <laughs> yeah, so it's another story. Michael McKean, thanks very much for being our guest today on Downstage Thank you very Center. much. I'm John Von Susten. I'm Howard Sherman. Join us again next time. Thank you.